So we're just in that kind of early, crazy experimental stage. It's very exciting and it's very risky. And I think this is why the regulators get excited because there's big consumer risk because consumers don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're buying. Sometimes they're persuaded to put in more money than they can afford to lose and they lose it and there's no recourse. Um, and then, of course, the other things the regulators are con concerned about is. Welcome to The Early Advantage, where I seek out the gaudiest wallpapers I can find and broadcast in front of them. No, I'm kidding. It's not just that. We do more. We do look at financial topics, investing topics, often that are underappreciated or, or not enough unpacked, and we try to get in there and unpack them. And this week, we're going to talk about Web3. Web3 is all over if you read articles about Web3, but settling on a clear definition and getting clear examples of what it is is a lot harder. At least it was for me. That's why I brought on Dr. Jane Thomason. She is a futurist and author, chair of the board of Kesai Holdings, which is a Web3 investment firm. And she's also pretty passionate, very passionate, I should say, about how Web3, how blockchain can benefit uh, developing countries, uh, disadvantaged groups of people, um, things like that, social causes, which I think is really cool because uh, it's not just blockchain in an ESG sense, but it has a real obvious visible use case, which has traditionally been the thing that's been lacking, at least so far, in a lot of Web3 projects. Whenever you have a new cool thing, you got a lot of hype, you got a lot of scammers, you got a lot of me too people who may not be dishonest, but just want to pile on with their own thing, hoping to, to make, big, uh, make big money on some gold rush. Um, but once the dust settles, you'll have just a few or a small group of big winners. And so the act of every investor is finding them. So um, we don't get super specific in that dimension in this interview, but we do talk about those use cases. So hopefully it's interesting to you and hopefully you'll stick around after my interview with Dr. Thomason because Brian Christopher is back with his stock screen of the week from Bloomberg as always. So thanks for watching. Web3. The metaverse. Anytime I open up a, a crypto website or read an article or watch a video, I hear these terms, but what are they? That seems like an obvious question, but I spent some time uh, reading some articles about this and because I had to write articles about this and I still couldn't get a, the clear answer that I really wanted. So with us today, with me today to unpack this is Dr. Jane Thomason. She is the chair of the board of Kesai Holdings, which is a Web3 investment firm. There are not many of them, so I think that's pretty cool as it is. She's also, though, she's also a thought leader in blockchain and Web3, particularly in their broader impact to society in, in all sorts of ways, international issues, developing countries, women's issues. Uh, there are a lot of of ramifications and, and next order effects that people like me have not thought through and, and people like her have. So uh, Jane, welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be on your podcast. So let's start with Kesai Holdings, uh, Web3 investment firm. Uh, a lot of people have heard that Web3 is going to be big, even if they don't know exactly what it is. Uh, how do you guys uh, set up the investment, first of all? So, so let me just explain what it is and why we did it, because I think that that's important. Um, we were really trying to figure out an easy way for anyone who wants to, to be able to invest in digital assets. And I, for one, am an absolute expert at losing my wallet, losing my seed phrase, losing my phone. I've probably lost more crypto in my life than I've ever owned. And uh, when I was approached by the team of Cassite to join them, 
they were explaining that what they wanted to create was a really simple, easy vehicle for people who wanted to put some money into digital assets to do so in a fully compliant and regulated way. So what it means is this is a publicly listed company on the Aquis Stock Exchange, and you can go and and all of our information is fully transparent and available, and you can buy our shares like you can buy shares in any other company, and then you're relying on our experienced investment committee to make investment choices um, on your behalf and grow the price of that stock. So that's essentially the way that we operate. And we have a, you know, a very experienced team uh, with thorough processes for doing due diligence and vetting of all the different projects that we invest in. Um, and for me, this is far better and safer than A, me having my wallet and B, me wake, making wild guesses on what different cryptos I should be putting my money into at any particular time. So that's why we did it and that's what it is. On, on Web3, um, I think the simplest way to explain it is to, if you look at the Web2, we call that the Internet of Information. Web2 allowed us to be able to exchange information with each other. The big difference with Web3 is it allows us to be able to exchange value with each other. So we're calling the Web3 the Internet of Value. And essentially, Web3 uh, takes everything that ever happened in Web2, but with the addition of the blockchain affordances um, like DeFi uh, and NFTs and, you know, all of the different things that you're able to do with DeFi, yielding, staking and so forth, it allows you to be able to exchange in a peer-to-peer -peer transparent way value with other people directly without a middleman. And so that's going to really democratise the internet and the exchange of value in ways that we haven't seen previously. And, and then moving on, because I know you mentioned the metaverse, and this is my simple explanation, the metaverse for me is an immersive Web3. But we, when we talk about the metaverse, we have to take a, a pause and talk about the open Web3 metaverse and the closed uh, meta and big tech metaverses that are also being built. So there's not one metaverse. So for those of us who believe in Web3 and believe in democratization of information and of value and of allowing people to access this and be able to exchange um, value in a peer-to-peer -peer way, we are all supporting the building of the open Web3. Got it. Those are, yep. those are uh, well explained, I think, much better than, than most of what I've seen out there. Uh, just very quickly, going back to Kessai Holdings, the idea, I guess, would be if you have a, a stock brokerage account, uh, it, it's easier to invest that way. It's maybe similar thematically to Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, but I think that just holds Bitcoin, whereas this is like a, more of a proper fund that, that holds a, a variety of investments. Is that all accurate? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. We, we have... Uh, and, and you can you can go go onto the internet and you can see what our investment strategy is. You can see what proportion of what kinds of assets that uh, we invest in, and it's all public. So let me go back to Web three, because you know Elon Musk says that it's just a bunch of nonsense, and and he's a you know pretty pro Bitcoin guy overall. Um, I guess the maybe the more charitable way to express uh, concern and, and 
I'm not expert enough to really have a deep concern, but I do know. I do know that in the U.S., for example, in the 1920s, or there, there were some 200 and something car companies at any given time, and there have been two or 2,000, 3,000 car companies total. And, and now, at least in the U.S., there are you know, like four. Um, in the 1990s, we had hundreds of different e-commerce platforms. And now we've got Amazon and you know, maybe eBay, right? That's the natural order of things. Whenever there's a new exciting thing, you've got a whole histogram of, of entrants popping up. And through survival of the fittest, you, you get down to a small group. Um, would you believe or, or agree that it seems like a lot of the Web3 projects we're seeing out there uh, will fail and there will just be a few big winners and so the, the secret sauce is to find those, or is it really such a big ecosystem that there are gonna be more winners than we think? Look, I think it's really hard to predict at the moment because this is the early days of the internet. This is all new, it's innovative, and it's experimental. But also we have, as you correctly pointed out, we have the big techs now that have these enormous monopolies and these enormous consumer bases to work with. So they're going to be working hard not only to keep those monopolies, keep those consumer bases, but grow them in other ways into other areas. And I think that's that's the whole story of Mark Zuckerberg announcing that he's doing the metaverse. They're all working on metaverses now, but there's more than 160 different companies building metaverses. And um, it's a little bit of that early days race for the moon when, when we had, uh, you know, all of the early search engines and in the end, maybe Google won. No one yeah. knew at that time. So we're really at we're really at that point. But there's some, you know, really fascinating experimentation going on at the moment. Um, and the areas that you know we're interested in uh, anything related to DeFi. We're interested in GreenFi, which is a big thing coming up. The investment um, in things like climate action and sustainability is capturing a lot of interest. Um, and looking for the projects that are really going to be able to um, be sustained and create uh, significant social transformation or have social utility. So uh, I personally, and CASI is looking for projects that are going to be in it for the long term. So people who are building things, not to make a quick dollar now by pumping a coin, but uh, projects that have real utility and are going to be around for the long term. And it sounds like you guys believe there are enough of those if you're if you're doing that professionally, obviously. Um, you know, obviously there's there's a a subset of, of web three that that you know they're paying these huge staking yields, and we can get into this in a minute, but there's the key element to success seems like, and, and you know much more than I do, but at least to me it seems like um, getting critical mass. And these projects, again, to me, they're, they're kind of a mix of a tech thing and then an investable thing at the same time. It's kind of kind of weird, but I think it's part of the essence of Web3. Um, the, you know, the, the project is also automatically an investment over a, a decentralized blockchain. Uh, but but it's not a lot of these things are not much use by and of themselves. Like they need bulk, uh, they need users to take off. They need a critical mass, or they need escape velocity. And, and so they're paying yields in, in the form of equity, their own equity basically, because that's the only thing they have to pay. Um, at some outrageous rates, which to me sometimes feels like a sign of desperation. Uh, and I know a lot of people have criticized the use cases, like, what are they really doing? Are they making the world better? It sounds like you're starting kind of from the opposite end, like, 
instead of what's the coolest thing, you're looking at what is what's going to have a true impact on society first. So you get the use case first, and then you back into the rest. Is that is that really uh, or broadly accurate? Well, I mean, that's absolutely my philosophy. And uh, you know, when I when I first became interested in blockchain, it was absolutely not because of crypto and making great yields or anything like that. And indeed, it was uh, 2016, 2017, when the ICO phase was on and people were raising crazy amounts of money for projects that were no more than a white paper. Um, But what I saw, and this was really from my own research and trying to understand the technology and thinking about it, not in the context of making quick money, but in the context of how this could become a kind of underpinning layer to so many things that we want to do as a society, which provides transparency, immutability, trust, um, and allows peer-to-peer activity. And then then I put my mind to thinking about, well, how is this relevant? And the first use case that came to my mind was, in fact, in humanitarian settings. And the example that, that I tell the story of, because it, it's absolutely what happened, was um, my company went into work after the Banda Aceh tsunami in Indonesia on Boxing Day when 200,000 people were lost to sea in the tsunami. And so we saw the, what happened afterwards and the devastation and the chaos. And after I'd been reading about blockchain for a period of time and being really confused, I suddenly had this kind of aha moment, which was, if you think about a setting like that, it's not just that 200,000 people are lost to sea, you don't know who they are. All of the identity records are lost, all the land records are lost, all the health records are lost, all the bank records are lost. You don't know who's in the camps, who the people who are the survivors. You don't know who's in the hospitals. You want to send money to the survivors. You have no way of directly sending money peer-to-peer to the survivors. And then if you kind of put that all together and think about the possibility that all of that information had been stored securely on a blockchain in the cloud somewhere, linked to a biometric, it would have just made the reconstruction so much easier because you could relink them to identities, to land records, to health records, to bank records, and you would be able to send money directly to people who were in need. And so it was just thinking about that that I suddenly went, okay, now I get how this could be used. And in fact, blockchain has been used um, quite widely in humanitarian settings, most famously by the World Food Programme, but UNICEF and and many other international organisations are now deploying it in humanitarian settings. And if you think about the race of the Syrian refugees. They've fled Syria and they're moving across Europe and and they have their mobile phone. They fled without their university degrees, without their bank accounts, without all of the things that proclaim who they are. And with a simple mobile phone and then a connection to a biometric, they would be able to securely um, recover that information, prove who they are, prove the skills that they have. So it's a really powerful thought when you think about it in terms of humanitarian. But there are many other use cases that have social value, and that's indeed what's interested me. And, and, and that's a fascinating example, and I had not thought about that. Um, the, the question I would ask is, do we need blockchain for that? I'm, I'm guessing the answer is no, we don't technically need it, but it's the the easiest solution. In other words, I mean, you could 
you could have a database, but a blockchain is, is cheaper and it's more credible. And especially in, in developing countries where trust is relatively low, trust in institutions, having that immutability, having that, um, that sort of, you know, third partiness is an asset. Is, is that accurate? Well, I think so. But if you think about, if you look at, um, you know, the crisis in Afghanistan, for example, and the economic collapse in Lebanon and what was happening in Venezuela, very quickly at a moment of crisis, you can directly transfer peer to peer. There's no middlemen. You don't need Western Union. You don't need a bank. You can just immediately transfer money, value directly to the people in need. And that's that's what we saw. Um, and I mean, you're probably not on the crypto telegram groups and things like that, but very quickly when the Afghanistan crisis blew up, then the crypto community got together, they connected with people who were there locally and they figured out how to be able to send uh, money to people to help them get out of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so it allows that immediate peer-to-peer transfer of value I mean, there's another piece of it as well, because in countries like those and others like Zimbabwe and so forth, where the the value of the local currency has plummeted, people see it as a new store of value. So people are transferring what wealth they have into crypto to preserve it. So they're the kinds of things that we're seeing in that vein. And um, you probably do need blockchain for that. So... Uh... You know, bringing this back to to specific Web three projects, um, what would be an example, either either real or hypothetical? I mean, you gave one about these refugees uh, on a boat. Um, what would be another humanitarian example, or or, or something where a Web three project specifically has a, a clear external use case? Well, I think the the one that's really interesting that uh, came up really during the pandemic and came to prominence was the play-to-earn games mm-hmm. uh, because traditionally, you know, gamers have played and they've earned assets, but these assets tend to have been only able to be used in the game and not extracted from the game and then exchanged for real money, if you like. So one of the phenomena that took place during the pandemic was a, a, like a, a group of people in the Philippines. So Philippines and a lot of these poor countries shut down and remember, a lot of people um, in Indonesia, Philippines, Africa, India, they live on the streets and they live in the day-to-day cash economy where they have to sell their drinks or their rice or whatever it is to get enough money to feed themselves. And so Philippines was shut. So all of the people who live on the streets and work in the cash economy had no way of earning money. And so a group of uh, you know, Filipinos, quite a large group in in a village in the Philippines, figured out that you could play this game called Axie Infinity um, on your mobile phone and they started being able to earn enough money in the game to be able to take out and to feed their families during the, um, the pandemic. Now, people will tell you very quickly that after a period of time, the Axie Infinity token value went down and, and there was a hack. But the point I think that's most important, considering we're in that early experimental phase, is that we actually saw in a real way a new economy developing from this game where people could play and earn money where they didn't have alternative forms of earning. And now we're seeing the development of 
so exercise to earn, learn to earn, all of these X to earn gamification, allowing people to earn income that they we couldn't have dreamed about before, they now can using these uh, token economies within games and not within games as well. And so that that's a kind of a really interesting concept that I think we're going to see more and more and more of that because you're basically developing a new economy and new income earning opportunities um, for poor people. But moving out of that, I think that what we're going to see is this concept of community token economies. And if you do you do reading about it, we're starting to create these networks, if you like, of people who all share an interest in being part of this economy. And I'll, I'll use an example for you uh, because there's, there's one that I'm involved with right now, which is around climate change, is building a distributed autonomous um, organisation to incentivise and reward people for participating, investing in, being part of climate action. And the point about a token economy is that everyone in that economy can can earn, can spend, can incentivise, can be rewarded uh, within that economy for whatever, whatever it is the purpose of the economy is. So we're seeing these things develop and I think they're going to, uh, I don't think, I know because we see them happening now, um, economies that are developing around, uh, you know, sporting teams, around movie stars and music stars and so forth. And you're creating a whole fan economy um, around these particular sports or, or stars and so forth. So there's going to be a lot more investment in those kinds of things. Um, and then just moving on to the metaverse, but I want to take, make it, a little bit more real for people because an area I had a you know a lifetime of experience in healthcare before I uh, veered off and got involved in blockchain. Um, but if you think about the possibilities for healthcare in the metaverse, so in this immersive environment where let's just start with education because people can understand that better. So first of all, if you're thinking about educating doctors and medical students. They can travel inside of the human body, see anatomy from the inside, walk through the heart and the arteries and see how it all interconnects. Um, but they can also be rewarded for learning and for learning well and for learning the skills that they need to be a good doctor. They can practice in with a digital twin on conducting surgery on a patient multiple times and the patient is never at risk because it's a digital twin. So you can really treat, teach them precision surgery in a, as if it were real. And then you think about scientific discovery, which takes global collaboration. Well, we can have scientific discovery in the virtual world with digital twins of patients or hospitals or whatever it is that you're working on and people in the form of avatars coming in and collaborating, discussing, having whiteboards, and it's always on. They can be in and out of there on a daily basis if they want. Um, and then thinking about uh, mental health, socially isolated, vulnerable people who can't get out and get services, who can't go to an exercise class, that can all come to them. So there's so many ways that we're going to be able to extend the provision of healthcare because not all healthcare takes place in a hospital um, in 
cheaper and more consumer friendly ways. That's that's very interesting, and and you know I'm, I'm getting a mental image as you as you walk through that. I mean, it kind of brings it to life. I mean, medical training especially seems like a very clear use case for for the metaverse, and and you know probably military training for you can you can coordinate with people or a SWAT team, you know, police, things like that, you know, people where there's a, a 3D uh, you know, physical visual element that wasn't captured in a uh, you know, text and photos internet or wasn't captured as well. Uh, that seems uh, super cool. And, and I guess going back to the Philippine example of earning the money playing the games, on one hand, we could look at that and say, well, that's nice, but that wasn't economically sustainable for that company, it sounds like. Um, on the other hand, though, I'm guessing. Oh, no, no, not at I... all. I just want to. I want to mm-hmm. clarify that. It, it that no, that because when they did the token design, they didn't expect that this was what was going to happen. So they need to go back and relook at the token design and the gameplay and do it again better. It's not that it was fundamentally wrong. It's just they didn't expect. There's hundreds of thousands of players all around the world started playing this game and then people were forming gaming guilds for people who couldn't afford to play the game to be able to assist them into the game. I mean, this is like massive business and it will continue to be refined. So where was the money coming from that was getting paid? I mean, so there were people getting paid to play, but you're saying there are people paying to play also. So it was coming from somewhere versus equity in that company? No, no. The, I think we need to listen. I think we, you can see it's getting darker where I am. But it's, it would be really worth having a session for your viewers just on the X to earn phenomenon because I believe that this is going to be really big and it's not something that can be explained in 20 seconds. Sure. So it's, I just yeah, think you should like, fascinating. Go, like that yeah. and come back to it. And I'm happy to, you know, I'm happy to come back, but I'm also happy to... Uh, you know, introduce you to people who really understand about the token economics and the gamification and how it works and what you can do better because people are now working on that. So let me step back then, uh, looking writ large uh, at, you know, we mentioned social projects, we mentioned, you know, Facebook's getting involved in the metaverse, and I've heard mixed reviews on that. Some people say what Facebook is doing is great. Uh, some people say they're, they're, they're massively dropping the ball. They've got all the money and resources in the world. And and, and they're not doing a good job at executing. I, you know, I'm not uh, qualified to, to, to render an opinion, I suppose, on that. But, I mean, if you look at, uh, I guess my question is going to be, where are we now? Because on one hand, people are saying, oh, the great thing about these, these about a blockchain, uh, about, about Web3 is, is trust, right? You have this immutable ledger that you know, means the same or, or nearly immutable ledger that, that, that can be relied upon. But then from another lens, if I look, at, especially at crypto, um, it's it's would seem like one of the least uh, trustworthy things. If you look at the volatility of it, you look at the scams, these rug pulls, um, and this is more on, on the monetary end and the crypto side. But like, where are we? Um, I don't know if a sports game is the right analogy. Uh, in, in the U.S., we would say baseball innings, but like we're still early days. Is that right? And and eventually, this is going to settle on something that becomes much more trusted, and that's going to get more participation, the more trust we have, the more people join in, right? I mean, where would you say we are as a society right now? No, we're very early, but the but one of the, the biggest sadnesses for me is that the whole of the blockchain Web3 industry gets tarnished with 
people who are bad actors who are basically doing these rug pulls because it's unregulated. So you can go and put your money into DeFi, but no one's going to protect you if you lose your money in DeFi. And DeFi, one of the reasons DeFi grew so quickly would be because people basically were taking lines of code from GitHub, repurposing them with a couple more work bells and whistles and launching their own DeFi project. So many of these projects are not audited. You don't know what you're buying. People are, it's a 24 hour market, it's unregulated. And so it's highly risky. That's not to say that if you go and think about the fundamentals of decentralized finance, which allow people to carry out all of the functions that are carried out by traditional finance, but in a much cheaper peer to peer way, that's a good thing in principle, the problem is that at the moment we've got certain projects that are doing that, um, you know, in a safe, clean, clean compliant, risk-free way, and then there's a bunch of other people who aren't. And so we're in that kind of Wild West era, and we're going to move through that because there are people who are working on very serious projects that are going to have longevity. Um, and indeed, if you go and have a look at banks and financial institutions, they're buying up a lot of these projects because they see how it will benefit them to be able to do their settlement more quickly, for example. So we're just in that kind of early, crazy experimental stage. It's very exciting and it's very risky. And I think this is why the regulators get excited because there's big consumer risk because consumers don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're buying. Sometimes they're persuaded to put in more money than they can afford to lose and they lose it and there's no recourse. Um, and then, of course, the other things the regulators are con concerned about is money laundering and terrorist financing, and they need to find solutions for that. And they need to work with the industry to you know, work on how to find uh, solutions that don't crush innovation, but still make sure that they're protecting against these, uh, these risks. So we're really in that stage but uh, I'm very confident to say to you that there are a lot of really good, serious projects going on that are building things which have long-term utility, which in the long run will underpin the internet that we use and we won't even know it's there and we won't even talk about blockchain. It'll just be there um, as a layer underpinning so many things that we do. As someone who's been a professional investor for 20-something uh, years now, I always say it always comes down to value. I mean, there's a lot of hype, a lot of excitement, and, and, and oftentimes it's deserved. But at the end of the day, a company is going to rise in price over the years if it's delivering value to humanity. And it sounds like that same principle would apply here that, yes, there's a lot of hype and, and, and some of it's deserved, some of it may be undeserved. But as long as this technology, as long as this social phenomena, because I think it's both a technology and a social phenomena, as long as those things are bringing value to humanity, and it sounds like you're kind of at the cusp of that, um, those good projects should do well over the long run. And, and that makes me feel uh, better about it than I did, I guess, at the beginning of this conversation. So, uh, Dr. Jane Thomas. I'm so glad I've been yeah. able to provide you with some therapy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank a side benefit, a occupational benefit, I guess. Uh, Dr. Jane Thomason, thank you very much for joining us. And, and one last question. If someone uh, is interested, they like what they've heard today, and they want to learn a little bit more, uh, where would you send them? I'd just tell them to um, link in with me. Mm -hmm. Most of the, I, I write a lot, I publish a lot, I've written books, I've written blogs. I post most of my content on LinkedIn. I do have a website, but just link in with me. 
and uh, well, follow what follow the things that I'm talking about, and hopefully I'll shed some light on some of the things that you've been thinking about. I'm also writing a book on Web three, which should be done by the end of the year. So hopefully you'd love to buy that book and read all about it. I'll be happy to pre-order a copy. And I admire the, these fast moving topics always seem stressful to me to write a book about, right? Because as soon as you get it out, like, you know, five things have changed that moves on. So I, I admire and respect that you're doing that. So I'm happy to pre-order uh, one or more copies. Uh, and, and hopefully some of our audience uh, will be interested as well. And we're happy to put your LinkedIn, uh, whatever links you want underneath the video. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Jane Thomason. And thanks to you guys for watching at home. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Good night now. Hi there. I'm Brian Christopher. I'm the editor of Follow the Money at South Bank Research. And in these videos, we take a theme and we run with it. We can get the themes from any number of sources. Last week, for example, James interviewed Doomberg. I encourage you to watch that video if you haven't already. Doomberg made many smart points that we don't hear enough of in today's society. One of these was the importance of nuclear. This week, I want to review some of the reasons why it's such a big deal and talk about some names that are already benefiting from the, this nuclear renaissance. This isn't a new story. The uranium price has been rising for a few years now. This is the weekly spot price of U308 from industry measurer UXC. It's priced in US dollars per pound. U308 is a powdery, yellow, energy-rich substance, and it's the most stable form of uranium oxide. The price is higher because it had to rise. It got so cheap that the companies that produce it weren't incentivized to do so at then low prices. Canadian producer Cameco, ticker CCJ in the US or CCO in Canada, shut down some of its production facilities. In March 2020, Cameco announced it would temporarily stop producing at its huge Cigar Lake uranium mine in northern Saskatchewan. That helped prices rise. Upon the announcement, you can see the price jumped. Russia's war on Ukraine jacked up the uranium price too. But these weren't the only reasons. The Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, ticker SRUUF in the U.S., and U.U in Canada invests in uranium. The trust highlights some of the reasons why in its investor presentation, as you can see here. The Sprott Trust started in July 2021. It now holds almost 57 million pounds of yellow cake, as U308 is known. That was as of the end of June. That's almost 45% of the world's annual production. This is enough to power France's nuclear energy needs for more than two years. The trust's purchase, and just as importantly, its holding of uranium, is bullish for the price. And if you want to juice something, leave it to politicians. Germany is now reconsidering its ban on nuclear. The UK and many EU countries now support nuclear. They've gone from phasing it out to calling it green. Japan wants up to nine nuclear reactors online by this winter. China plans to produce 20% of its electricity from non-fossil fuel sources by 2030. 
8% or 40% of that 20% will be nuclear. South Korea was phasing out its nuclear program. Now it seeks to grow nuclear to nearly, nearly one-third of its energy mix by 2030. And there are more examples. Shoot, even lawmakers in the People's Republic of California have decided to keep its last operational nuclear plant open for another five years. Per the World Nuclear Association, there are currently 437 nuclear reactors in operation globally. There are 59 more being built and another 89 planned for construction. These plants all require uranium. Nuclear is an important part of our future. The whole world recognizes that now. I don't believe, meaning I really hope that the politicians don't reverse this. In a future world with less oil and gas, nuclear is essential. And even though the uranium price has risen, it can go higher. And the current uranium price is still less than the expected cost of production for most new, undeveloped primary energy sources. We have to consider these sources if we aren't going to get uranium from Russian sources. So, which stocks will benefit? The names I've already mentioned are in position to benefit. In fact, they've already started to do so. Cameco is the North American mega cap in this space. It's higher than it has been in a long time, but it's still 70% 70, 70 off its all-time highs. It currently pays a 12-cent Canadian quarterly dividend. As an aside, Kazatomprom, K-A-P in London, is the major player near Europe. In fact, it's the world's largest uranium producer. It's cheaper, but it also has more geopolitical risks due to its relationship with Russia. The Sprott Physical Uranium Trust benefits from and contributes to the uranium price. Sput, as it's known, has become a value-creating secret when it's... <clears throat> or has a value-creating secret. When its shares trade at a premium, it issues more shares and uses the proceeds to buy more uranium. It has removed about 40 million pounds from the market in a little more than a year. The trust does not plan to sell these pounds, so they're being permanently removed from the available supply. Theoretically, at least. Jersey-based Yellow Cake PLC, that's YCA in London and YLLXF in the U.S., holds pounds of uranium and moves higher with the uranium price, too. Its price is also up recently. And as Japan brings its nuclear reactors online that were idled post-Fukushima, its power companies with nuclear exposure should benefit. Kansai Electric Power, ticker 9503 in Japan, has positive momentum. Kansai just generated positive free cash flow in the six months ended in March. This was the first time it had done so in nearly three years but we need to consider some short-term risks to this thesis. First, the U.S. Fed and other central banks are hell-bent on raising rates to fight inflation. Since uranium is priced in dollars, a more valuable dollar can theoretically reduce the uranium price. Like most things commodities, 
a ceasefire and the war between Russia and Ukraine could have a negative effect on uranium prices too. Since the war began, much of the world has been slow to send Russia money for stuff, including uranium. It hasn't been able to do that with uranium though, or not as much. Most of the uranium, though most of the uranium comes from Kazakhstan, it's still enriched in Russia. If there is peace or something like it, the price could fall in sympathy. Though again, this is less due to reality than with other commodities. So be careful buying into this uptrend, at least for your full position. Thank you.